Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hey everyone, welcome to Until Saturday. Chris Vanini here. Before we get started, I just wanted to give a disclaimer that we recorded this episode about first-year head coaches before the Colorado Big 12 news. There is a section when we get into Deion Sanders, obviously, and we talk about some Pac-12 as well. So if you're wondering why there isn't any Colorado Big 12 conversation in that part, it's just because it didn't happen yet. It doesn't ultimately change any of the takes that we had on Deion era in Boulder, but we just wanted to let you know. Enjoy the show. Yeah, yeah. Chris is going to be firing on all cylinders, I think. So we've got a pretty juicy show here as we continue to uh, preview this season in a one-month period where we have an episode every single day, uh, Monday through Friday, leading into week zero. Um, before we get started into this, I want to remind everybody uh, to uh, be sure to follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, uh, if you could drop a five-star review, that helps the show's growth. It helps uh, um, our company be convinced that we should continue to do this. And of course, it helps uh, the growth of that. So if you could also uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel for our great video content, the link to the YouTube channel is found in the show's description. And uh, that's where the Saturday Night Live show will go and, and all of our content, video content that's worth getting into. So today's podcast topic is new first-year coach hires. Um and there's some good, some bad, some ugly, maybe. I don't know. Meet the first-year head coaches. We're going to go down the list of, of of ways of looking at it, and I think we're going to get into a nice, broad discussion about the entire sport. Power 5, for all you G5 junkies out there, I think we're going to have a little something for you today. We don't ignore you. You say we do. We don't. Um, why don't, why don't we, uh, I, I'm, I'm making sure it happens. I'm making sure it happens. Yeah, yeah. Chris is, uh, knows more about the P5 than the P5 knows about the P5. So uh, excited to have he you on, G5. but... Uh, yeah, I'm at G5. So let's go into the first topic here. Okay. Who do you guys believe is the best hire of the first year coaches going into the season? All right. I'll, I'll well, go first. Go ahead. Chris. Uh, if you don't mind, Evan, we, 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 we have 24 new head coaches. It was 23. It became 24 in July when Pat Fitzgerald got fired at Northwestern. So we have 24 to choose from. That's a, that's on the upper end of a typical carousel, but my, Best hire? I'm going to start with Matt Rule, Nebraska. Obviously, Matt Rule's tenure with the Carolina Panthers was terrible. But before that, he did a good job at Temple. He did a good job at Baylor, a really good job at Baylor. The guy knows how to rebuild programs. And if there's a program that needs to be rebuilt, it's Matt Rule. I'm sorry, it's Nebraska. And Matt Rule knows how to do it. And uh, I've just there's been a lot of energy and momentum and excitement around that program. And... I know we talk about Nebraska all the time and are they ever going to be back? I don't know if they're going to be back, back like nineties back, but I think Matt rule knows what he's doing here. So that's my pick for best hire. I kind of land on, on, you know, I, I think if you, for those of you read our, our fan survey, certainly the expectations are high for, for Luke fickle at, at Wisconsin, but it's, it's almost too easy. I say, don't, don't overthink it. When you've got a coaching hire, if there's a guy out there, you do it. And Jeff Brom to Louisville, I think, makes a lot of sense. And I think, too, you know, you got the alum factor. You've got uh, all the things that, that he has done there and, and all of that. But on top of that, let's not overlook the fact that even though people have been talking about, oh, when is he going to go to Louisville? When is he going to go to Louisville? I think you upgraded uh, away from Scott Satterfield. Uh, you, you bring Jeff Brom in there. And you did the rarity is that you lured a coach out of the Power 2 conferences into the ACC. Yeah. That's hard to do. And you're not going to see that very often. Now, granted, like we said, there's a lot of advantages, a lot of reasons why that happened. But I think it's going to pay off for Louisville. I think you upgraded uh, at head coach. And I think you got a, a good situation moving forward. So if I take Luke Fickle here, Dave, am I? is that a layup? Is that, take, is that overthinking it? <laughs> well, I think at the end of the day, Luke Fickle probably 
Uh, I'd have to double check the list, but the most accomplished coach on this list, you could make a case for Matt Rule, maybe. But yeah, but Luke Pickle probably the most accomplished coach on the list, going to one of the programs in the best shape. So it's sort of like a a, a one plus one equals two thing. But it's so I'll lay up perhaps, but but I, I get the I get the instinct. So do you want? Well, here's the thing. Here's the re- this is all like that's the thing. I guess program in best shape. But the reason why I like the Luke Fickle hire the most is. Because Wisconsin sent a message to its fans and to the country even that it's going to be taking football um, very seriously, that they expect to not only be the Big Ten West, uh, you know, the most consistent team in that side of the the conference. And, of course, one of the most consistent winners in the in the country uh, over the past 10 years or so. But it expects to compete at a higher level and for national championships. And uh, now that the the. Big Ten is going to be axing divisions and Wisconsin is going to be um, exposed potentially to more of the East teams that they've had to, you know, kind of zigzag through over the last you know decade or so. You know, it was very shocking uh, that Wisconsin fired Paul Chris in the middle of the year. Like nobody would have seen that coming because Wisconsin is Miss, Mr. Old consistent. Right. And when they did that, um, not only did they they make that surprising move in the middle of the year, but then they backed it up by going out and getting one of the most sought after coaches in the entire country who had led a G5 team to the playoff. So I understand Matt Rule. I love that. Um, I love that the thing that you could say about Matt Rule the most is that he's just painfully consistent and uh, competent, which is literally the anecdote for Nebraska. And Jeff Brom um, did some really good things at uh, Purdue and obviously is coming home to a place that he understands the most. Like I think that it's good that we all three had different answers, and I think that they're all probably. I, I don't know if there's a fourth answer in this list here for that for this this section. Yeah, and I, and I think there's one thing. The one yeah. thing that I think people overlook with with Luke Fickle too is, you know, there is a world in which Luke Fickle is Michigan's coach, or is Ohio State's coach, or is Notre Dame's coach, or is USC's coach. Wisconsin, great program, not on Still that level. Be. Maybe, <laughs> but great program, not on that level, but it doesn't matter. Luke Fickle is Wisconsin's coach right now. And I, I think, you know, all of the, the reasons why that may happen and the timing and the butterfly effect of all those things, none of that matters. You got him. And, you know, the coaching carousel is always a little unpredictable. You know, the, 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 the turn we had, what, two years ago with Brian Kelly and Lincoln Riley was a little bit more shocking than this year. Um, but you never really know. And I think ultimately Wisconsin capitalized on that. And, and also we should give a shout out. If you don't know why Wisconsin fired Paul Chris midseason, give a read to our colleague, Jesse Temple's very good look into why that happened. Yeah. I think part it's of that was because they, yeah, they went f- yeah, four right. or five uh, months in the middle of the recruiting season without a recruiting staff was one of them. Yeah. All, all three of our picks had really interesting hired like the hiring process so like mm-hmm. paul chris gets fired and everybody's shocked but everybody assumes jim leonard's gonna get the job right and i had heard from the beginning like no like this is a real search they want to find somebody like you're not just promoting from within if you don't think what's going on right now is working and up until the very end a lot of people kept just assuming it was jim leonard and then they pull luke fickle out uh at the last second which it was a process that had been going on secretively uh, quite well Nebraska, our colleague Max Olson wrote a good story about that search. They had basically cut ties at some point and then eventually got back together, got Matt Rule to Nebraska with a humongous contract with a lot of great perks. And then Jeff Brom to Louisville. It was like the most obvious one, like even like what, like a year ago. He was saying like, yeah, I might go to Louisville at some point. (laughs) Like He was pretty (laughs) open about wanting to go back uh, because because he's from there. And so it ultimately wasn't a surprise that he went, but that was like the most obvious one uh, you would expect, but it was, he was open about it. And like you said, uh, someone leaving the big 10 to go to the ACC is like, that's not going to happen again. It's also like one of the rarest times in college football where a three year rumor or thought process actually came true. You know, it's like the, uh, uh, that's just not usually how it works in the sport. So, um, Okay, so we're going to do the inverse of this now, and I find this to be interesting. We're going to go into worst hires, and that's mm-hmm. it's kind of some some dragon breath coming out of the gate here. Um, you know, <laughs> we're we're what eight minutes into Chris's first podcast in the new feed, and we're already going to be yeah, tossing some negativity out there. But I wanted to say this before we got into it, guys, that college football coaching hires are sometimes impossible to predict. 
you know, the, the biggest layups that we think are like the biggest home run hire of the last three years, I think you could make the case, you know, was Nebraska's last coach, right? I mean, the guy won a national championship there and uh, was a player. He got A pluses. He got A pluses from every single person and it didn't go well, you know, and then there, there are times where you think things aren't going to be really good. And then it turns out to be the best thing that that school could have done. So, you know, as we go into the Kansas hires, Charlie Wise. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to go into my worst hire uh, and I'll go last, but I wanted to go into this section understanding that it seems bad maybe, but it might turn out to be awesome. And I'm, I'm very curious about yours here specifically, Dave. So why don't you get started? Mm-hmm. Well, spoiler, spoiler alert. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, it's currently <laughs> on the screen. Yes. Uh, so listen, I, I, I poke to, I, I point to Trent Dilfer at UAB. Uh, Trent Dilfer, probably a very good football mind. I, I, I don't particularly have a, a relationship with him. Um, pulled out of, uh, you know, it's not every day you can you can go to the Nashville high school ranks and find a find a a G five head coach, but ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, what this is about for me is for one, you have a UAB program that's a very proud program. There's a lot of expectations there. You got to compete for titles there. You can't just go seven and five and people are going to be happy. You you better be trying to win some titles. Secondly. You know, he, he has never been on a college staff, unless I'm mistaken, Chris. you I believe you went to Birmingham. I, I don't believe that that is the case. Now, we've seen a lot of guys go from high school and eventually become big-time head coaches. Um, you know, Gus Malzahn, I covered a million years ago from a high school paper. Joy McGuire at Texas Tech um, is one of those guys that's had some success. I suspect he'll have a lot more success shortly. We've seen it before. But the, the, the issue is that when you see it, you usually see them go on a staff for a while in a variety of roles um, and sort of see how the operation works. Because a college football head coach, it's not about coaching that much football. It, there is a, an element of that, but it's you're a psychologist. But more than that, you're a Fortune 500 CEO. They're, they're just gigantic operations and less so at UAB than at, say, Alabama. But there's still a lot of moving parts and, and being able to delegate and figure out all those things. You, every coach I've ever talked to that's a first-time head coach is like, I thought I'd be spending more time coaching football. So regardless of what Trent Dilfer knows about football is sort of secondary, I'm not sure that you know how to successfully run a program when you're you know, replacing a guy in Bill Clark who runs a program about as good as anybody um, and had enjoyed a lot of success there. So uh, ultimately, you know, that's going to be a situation where uh, you got to have a steep learning curve and a place that's not that patient. So I, I don't buy it. Uh, can I yeah, punch I, back I went, at him real quick, Chris? Um, yeah, go I, ahead. I, I'm, I'm I'll talk just, about my trip to Birmingham. Yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. Uh, but before you go into that, I, I wanted to say, because you are like our Deion Sanders expert. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, and I, and I felt like while you were talking about why you have questions about him is probably the reason why I would like that hire the most. Um, if you're looking for a CEO type person that knows how to delegate, understands football and, you know, has a background building a high school program that I visited in Nashville uh, and spent some time with that. And it was basically uh, like a run, like a Mac program. I mean, the facilities at Lipscomb and all the things they built there and the way that they went, it went about winning. I mean, might not have been the most popular thing in the Nashville community because of you know how they built their roster, but he built a program already. Now I'm not going to sit here and act like, uh, building a high school program is the same thing as building a college program. But if you have some belief, and we're going to get into this later on in the show, uh, that that Deion Sanders is going to work because of his ability to attract and his name recognition and you know all the CEO type things that he's going to have to do there. And, and, and granted, I understand it's different. Wouldn't a recognizable Super Bowl champion that's built a high school program, understands football, has relationships with people in the Elite 11 and kind of like makes you think, hey, what's going on at UAB enough to get Chris to go on an airplane and visit it there? Like, isn't that exactly the type of shot on the arm that can be an absolute grand slam home run if he figures it out? Did you yeah, need me, a shot in the me, arm? I don't think well, so. Well, that, that's a fair question. I'm going to because to me, the biggest comparison for Trent Dilfer's hire is Dion. Yes. But it's mm-hmm. Dion going to Jackson State. It's not Dion going to Colorado, you know? Mm-hmm. And Trent Dilfer, having been there, they have beefed up the recruiting staff in a way they have not done before. He took less money. They put more money into it, drastically expanded that. So, like, recruiting is a major focus of that. 
Now, unlike Dion, he's not going to get the number one overall recruit to come to UAB. You know, he's Why probably not, not going to get an elite 11 quarterback to come to Birmingham. And that's where it's a little bit different than Dion because I don't think he's going to be able to recruit at that level. My biggest question to the point Ubbin said, which is you're a CEO type of, of coach. His staff is very inexperienced. There is almost no FBS experience on this staff. He brought his defense coordinator from Lipscomb High School, Alex Mortensen, who's been an analyst at Alabama forever, son of Chris Mortensen, is the offensive coordinator. And they have a couple other guys who are analysts at South Carolina at Ohio State that come over. So that's my bigger question is not Dilfer himself because I went there and like he has a plan. He knows what he's doing. Is mm-hmm. it going to work? I don't know. But he has a plan and a vision of what to do. My biggest question is, can the staff he put together with so little FBS experience get the most out of that? That we don't know. Well, the thing that I like about it is the ceiling. Like if things all line up, I think the ceiling is really high. So I agree. Like for but it to be the Dilfer worst high, UAB because you're in a it's place both. that cares. It's you're in a place that cares deep about college football. Birmingham might as well be the college football capital of the world. But you don't okay, think so that, that UAB ceiling's for, bigger well, with Dilfer at, at the helm than it would be if they hired some other coach that no one's ever heard of before? Got, then if they had Tom Herman or something, no, I don't think so. No. Yeah, I'll say this That's, from a media perspective: I'm surprised I'm the only one. I think me and Dennis Dodd were the only ones who went to Birmingham to see him. I'm kind of mm-hmm. surprised more people didn't because he's a big media guy. It's Great talker. He'll he'll charm your ass off. Like really engaging guy to be with. I'm kind of surprised nobody else has gone by there uh, as well. But but of all the 24 my, names, yeah. the 24 names on the list, like you, that jumps out of you as the worst. Like it's just kind of surprising to me. It's, I think it, I just search, I think I spent yeah. enough time. I spent enough time in the state of Texas and seen so many coaches run gigantic programs or very good coaches, and nobody hired them. Even though they might not have yeah. the celebrity factor of Dilfer, I think what they were doing in Texas, where it's incredibly difficult. Everyone's got these big operations. Um, you know, we've had you know whether it be uh, you know Chad Morris, you know he he I think he went straight to being the OC at Clemson um, from uh, from Allen, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, I think that's um, right. Did I skip a step there? Was he at Highland Park? Either way, he went from the high school ranks, you know, into there and, 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 and obviously an X's and O's guy. If this thing worked, I think you'd see it more often and at bigger places. Nashville is a growing market for college football, for high school football. It's, it's changed a lot in the last 20 years. It's not Texas. It's not California. It's not Florida where the, the creme de la creme of coaches are coming out of there. And that's just not, not what we've seen. I think the guy who p- replaced him as well at Lipscomb, uh, Kevin Mawai, I believe. Ah, uh, former yeah. Titan. There you go. Yeah, so they got another NFL guy. That's a really, really nice place there in Nashville. Uh, the program was has a good history, but it was really at the bottom when Dilfer took it over. He got a bunch of really good players in. They, they got a handful of D1 teams. guys, I believe, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. They just yeah, got a commit to a Tennessee uh, earlier this month. Okay, yeah. Chris, I think your guy is a is a name that Ohio State fans are going to be very familiar with. Yeah, uh, also excited to also hear this. With, yeah, also sticking in the group of five, uh, Coastal Carolina hiring Tim Beck, who was most recently the offensive coordinator at NC State. Before that, he was at Texas, at Ohio State, at Nebraska, Kansas, and some other places. And it to me, it's it's the worst hire because it lacks. Uh, lacks uh imagination he was hired basically because they knew jamie chadwell was leaving and they locked him up pretty quickly so there wasn't a massive drawn out search i would have liked somebody you know jamie chadwell's a really innovative guy offensively Mm -hmm. especially and they got an offensive coach but you know it's not um it's not an innovator like jamie chadwell was and i would have liked if coastal carolina continued that experimental type of let's let's be weird (laughs) yeah and so it just it felt like a very look, it could work. I mean, Grayson McCall is back. He's the best player in the Sun Belt. They could still do well, but it just felt like there was an opportunity for the program to take a like a step up and kind of going and continue to kind of do its own thing. And it just it felt like a like a average hire when I think they could have done better. In all those places that Tim Beck has been, Chris, uh, I'm still waiting for somebody to be like. 
Tim Beck revitalized our program. Like he absolutely yeah. changed everything in there. He's the reason why we went from six wins to ten wins. Haven't heard that much. Yeah, he was a coastal team. You know, they 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 were in the top fifteen a couple years ago. You know, like mm-hmm. they 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 Jamie Chadwell when they did that in twenty twenty, he was the lowest paid coach in the country. So like the resources are not totally there. They're working on building an indoor. They're they're bringing a lot more in. So maybe that's a factor in kind of how you end up on Tim Beck. But he was mm-hmm. the uh, like public enemy number one uh, at Ohio State towards the end of his tenure there. And yes. I went and I, I found because I looked at this list here before we started the podcast, and I found a article. Um, detailing Beck's departure from Ohio State to Texas. And, you know, he was the quarterback coach and, you know, an offensive assistant during Ohio State's 2015 season uh, where they were the most talented team they've ever had and didn't make the playoff. And it said the issues during the 2015 season could be chalked up to the ongoing quarterback battle between JT Barrett and Cardale Jones. Um, However, uh, JT Barrett's regression was palpable. So, like, I think, like, as you go back and remember how JT Barrett's career looked as a player – it was almost like, you know, at the second half of his career, there were games where it looked like he forgot how to pass. And like now you're talking about going to a new place that, um, you know, has a really good quarterback returning. And, you know, you have an innovation there uh, with the previous head coaching staff and Chadwell. They had like an energy, a brand to it. And it's like Tim Beck, I, I think, lacks all of those things. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. But I, I that would have been my pick, uh, Chris, if it wasn't yours. So, um Again, we're going to have three different answers. Mine was Scott Satterfield at Cincinnati. And can I just ask you guys a question? I don't mm. know if I really have a huge preamble here, but wasn't this man on the hot seat like yes. in the middle of the season <laughs> last year? Now, I will say season. two things to this. Ari, on one hand, I am with you on this. I think that uh, Cincinnati, aim higher. Cincinnati, believe in yourself a little bit more. <laughs> uh, uninspiring. The flip side of this is I know another coach who had washed out of a job and was on the hot seat and it's worked out pretty well. And his name is Josh Heupel. <laughs> yeah, that's a so good you comparison. Never, you truly never know. Um, well, here's the thing I wanted to say. Though. I didn't see anything from him at Louisville that that impressed me. If you look at the long list of names, at least going back to the early 2000s that have been the head coach at Cincinnati, you have Mark D'Antonio. Obviously successful there and then went on to be very successful at Michigan State. You've got Brian Kelly, who is coaching your LSU Tigers to the national title this year. Right, Dave? Um, He was very good. Butch Jones, (laughs) you're another person you're very familiar with. Had a lot of success there. I think was the Big East coach of the year in 2011. Uh, Tommy Tuberville, who's now in politics, I guess. Yeah. Uh, And uh, Luke Fickle. uh, And we all know where that went. I don't know. There are certain G5 programs. And Chris, maybe you can help me out with this that feel like they transcended regardless of who their head coach was or it was easier to win there. I think Houston had a few years with three or four different coaches of, of achieving really good results. Mm-hmm. Cincinnati is always a really good top-tier uh, Arkansas team. Arkansas State was kind of you know. in that mix. So I don't know if it's Which, the coach or the program, but if you look back at that list, it probably makes me feel like it's the coach. So if you are Cincinnati and you're selling your program and your job opening um, – all you have to do is say, here are the last five or six coaches that are here. Four of them uh, are either very successful in their current rules or just took big time jobs somewhere else. Like, I feel like Cincinnati should have had a pretty easy time hiring uh, a person that really fits into that. Yes. I think they could have sold somebody better or somebody more sexy at the time. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm not saying that he has no chance to compete or do it do it well there, but I do know that the key to surviving at Cincinnati is recruiting Ohio well and identifying prospects that Ohio State's not going after and kind of competing against the middle tier Big Ten teams. And his his background, I believe, is from North Carolina. Like there's no yes. there's no geographical connection there either. So I just it doesn't seem to fit to me. The number one thing I rem- I will remember about Scott Satterfield's tenure at Louisville was when he tried to take the South tried to get in on the South Carolina job yeah. and it got out go back. and he, he had to basically pull out and like apologize and like have a release a statement just apologizing for looking at another job and then may, or may not have like gone back to look at it again in South Carolina because yeah he's from that area he spent his whole life at App State uh before before Louisville um and to your point Ari I mean Cincinnati is now not a group of five program. It's a power mm-hmm. five team mm-hmm. that made the playoff two years ago. That is going to be expecting like, to win recruiting battles against Wisconsin and Michigan state yeah. and all those other teams that would have been considered at a higher, like remember 
Luke Fickle was at Cincinnati flirting with Michigan State, and now I think you can make the case that they're on the same tier. Yeah, and, and some of the other names I think were around this when, when Satterfield got it. Sean Lewis, uh, Kent State, uh, had big offense You know, mm-hmm. there at Kent State, knows Ohio, took the OC job at Colorado, and Mo Linguist, who was at Buffalo, who's a good recruiter. He hasn't done much really yet at Buffalo, but a good recruiter there. So, yeah, I, I, it, it seemed like, you know, you have the the big offensive guy or the recruiter guy, and then you got Satterfield in between, who's just kind of, yeah. So that, well, that I coach, think in terms of ex, terms of expectations and what you felt like you could get at this big moment for Cincinnati, I can understand well, why just, you would just kind of meh, makes me feel well, pretty good about my pick. The last coach you rescued from the the last coach you rescued from the hot seat and a recruiting dinner ran your program into the ground and then became a senator. So. <laughs> Listen, so congratulations, it, it, Senator Satterfield. Yeah, yes, exactly. Down the road, I guess. <laughs> um, okay, guys, this is going to be the third segment, and this one could be the rest of the show, or oh, we can <laughs> try our best to to make sure we get to the I other. I can't believe we here, haven't but, talked about him yet. But it's a good point. Yeah. Listen, first year head coaches. I'm sure you know that's going to be the thing that people you know think about when you have first year head coaches. But Deion Sanders, uh, will he work? Um, and what do you think the over under is during his tenure, Dave? Why don't we start with you since you live I in Boulder? I think before now. we before we get yeah, I I'm gonna have a vacation home in Denver before this season's done. I think before we get into this, I think it's worth defining like okay, what does it mean for Dion to work to have a successful tenure at Colorado? Because that's a compli- that's actually a complicated question because their microscope has been so. Uh, intense on them and because they've won some high profile recruiting battles from the transfer portal and made some enemies along the way. And he's, you know, Dion is a very prominent coach and has also been picked to finish 11th in the PAC 12 this season. So ultimately you're inheriting a one and 11 team. You're rebooting the entire roster. Essentially. I, the, I, there are a lot of ways to define that. I think the best way is they opened spring practice with 51 scholarship players from last year's team on Colorado. They now have 10 remaining. So (laughs) you're really having a wholesale roster flip in one year. So you've never seen anybody ever try to do this before. So when you inherit a program that has already sort of been rotted and then you further rip it down to the studs, you know, if you win four games in year one, is that a success? Uh, You know, I think certain people would disagree. If you get to a bowl game, that's a, that's a rousing success, but I think there is a sect of the population that believes that he can be, you know, on the precipice of a big tw- or of a Pac-12 title. Yeah. By the way, remember the Vegas. I, I believe Vegas has taken more yeah. action on Colorado to win the national title of the Pac-12 than any other team. Yeah, that, that's correct. <laughs> so that, that that's in part because of the odds. By the way, not well, whatever. Not, well, but I, it's also that in part because gambling so. is legal in in Colorado. The gambling apps are legal Everything's there too. Legal so Colorado, man. Like yes, uh, but the but but so like I think so. That's sort of the question here is there are people who believe. Oh, they're going to win nine mm-hmm. games right away. They're not going to win nine games this year. I'm sorry they're not. You could convince me they could win five or six games if this all works. I'm skeptical that's going to be the case. So will it work long term is a complicated question. I think they can get to a bowl game in year two. I'll be very surprised that they if they do that in year one. But could the thing any that other I don't understand do here, Dave, I don't think I don't think so. Is what does long term success look like? So let's say you take the over of three mm-hmm. and a half years mm-hmm. and we go into year seven or eight of the Dion experiment experience mm-hmm. here. What is success at Colorado look like if Dion stays there long term? Like, is this a team that expects to make the playoff and win playoff games? Or are they just hoping to be a middle top you know, middle to, you know, middle top upper class Pac-12 team once the power paradigm shifts and, uh, you know, all the major programs on the Big Ten and the SEC and it's just kind of a fun team to watch. Like, that's well, the Dion's thing. Well, that- there for a long time, right? You forget the Pac-12 is losing USC and UCLA next year. So is there any reason to believe why, if Dion is there for a long time, that they can't be the third best roster in the conference if it holds together and you have Oregon and Washington and Colorado sitting there at number three in terms of just talent composite. That's pretty realistic to me. Now in a, in the real world, I don't think Dion's there longer than three and a half years. I think once Shador leaves, 
which will probably be after the next two seasons, this thing gets real tenuous because Shiloh would have graduated already. And I think that, you know, he is his coach in high school. He's his coach at Jackson State. He's his coach at Colorado. If you want to believe that Dion has black and gold blood coursing through his veins, more power to you. I I believe he has Sanders (laughs) blood coursing through his veins. And I think once Shador leaves, I think the the conversation about what his future looks like gets tenuous. Does he leave coaching altogether? His left foot might have something to do with that. But if Mm -hmm. they do blow up and win six games this year and nine games next year and say another big program comes calling, that's going to be pretty interesting. Well, Chris, we actually have a a discussion to have here, too. And and I know that he's had some health issues with his foot. Is there a conversation to be had about – because I remember when I was covering college basketball, I covered Thad Mata at Ohio State, and he had a a major back surgery that had him – having a hard time walking. He had very big back pain issues and couldn't get on planes and it hurt his recruiting. And it, it ultimately, you know, stopped him from a while from coaching. I know he's back in the game now, but when you say long-term seven, eight years, like is he physically able in your mind, Chris, to do this job now? And do you think in eight years, like he's still going to be physically able to coach? Look, look, he didn't go to Pac-12 media days because he had to have another surgery. And if you watch some of those YouTube videos that they put out, the mm-hmm. ones where he's talking with the doctors and the trainers, like it sounds really serious. Like he mm-hmm. almost had to have his leg amputated, I think back at Jackson state and, and things are as good as they can be right now, but he hasn't even coached a game yet. And he's had several issues with the foot already. What's it going to be like during the season when he starts really going through the grind of this stuff. So like, I, I just hope he's okay, first of all, that he sure. that he physically can do all of this. Um, but it is something like worth considering that I don't think anybody, we haven't really talked about it yet in the Dion, you know, conversation. But I think it's worth talking about because he's putting it out there and like kind of showing what the situation is. So and it's worth a, noting. A, a, too, yeah. Man. It's worth noting. Yeah, no, you go ahead. We have a recent comparison for this. It was much funnier at the time. But Hugh Freeze coaching from a hospital bed in the press box. <laughs> was played yeah. more for laughs, but like we have seen a coach at the major level. I mean, Liberty, say what you want about Liberty, but it's still, you know, it's still an FBS job. You know, uh, did they lose that game to Syracuse or did they win? They did. They did lose. I remember Derek Dooley had the stool one time. Uh, yeah. Gus Malzahn had the like the marching band stand at UCF, one of his first <laughs> games. Or so like yeah. we've seen it, but 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 never like long term. If it's a game yeah. or two here. Yeah, I think that. That, that the bet here, though, guys, is a snap call for the under um, not only because like just take his health questions out of the equation. The thing that I've always found interesting with Dion and, and Dave and I have actually had conversations on the phone about this is, is that does anybody actually have a clear and identifiable understanding of like what his actual personal goals are? Because like that's the thing too. It's like is is he trying to be the head coach at Florida State or Alabama or at a at a at a big time uh, place, or is he trying to build up a place um, and stay there? Because it's like you know, once we get down to the next one, I don't want to. I'll blow my my cover here. The next segment is most surprising hire, and Dion was for me, uh, just because I didn't think that Colorado would be the place that I would have jumped to when I was as hot as he was as a candidate. Now. I like what he said about it doesn't matter where you are as long as you're in the P5. You can recruit at a certain level and have enough money and facilities to get by, which was a a big step forward from Jackson State. But now if the you know realignment continues, I think you can make a case that Pac-12 is in in trouble as it pertains to being viewed as a P5 conference the way that we view it now. So Mm -hmm. like what does he want to do? So it's either really bad which means he's probably gone in less than three years or less than four years, or it's really good. And then he's gone in less than three or four years. And if it's just fine, like, I don't even know if he'd have the desire to keep going. So like, I don't know. I I don't look at this coaching tenure and think, man, Dion is just going to make Colorado the badass West coast conference team. uh, That is just much watched television television for the next 20 years. Like, I think that there is an end game here one way or the other. And I don't know what that is because his whole shtick does not work in the NFL. Like that's not going to work. You're not going to come into the NFL and talk about, you know, bad, you know, Gucci bags and all kinds of yeah. stuff like that. So it, it, Florida state 
I know everybody jumps to it because it's his alma mater. My sense from talking to people there is that he doesn't have much of a relationship with Florida State right now. So like he may or may not go there, but I don't think he's like angling to get that job. And in terms of like why he went to Colorado, he went to Colorado because it was the only power five place that offered him a job, you mm-hmm. know, like like that. And, and so like his whole like take away the Dion flashiness of it. If you listen to the themes and the things that he's saying, talking about quarterbacks from two parent homes and all this kinds of stuff, he sounds like Bobby Bowden. You know, he sounds like an old school type of coach, really. And that doesn't translate to the NFL. So I don't know if NFL is his plan. I'm sure he'd love to get to a bigger SEC school, you know, something like that. Um, but long term, yeah, I, I don't really know. I don't think it's clear with someone like him who's got millions and millions of dollars and all the star power you could want. It's not like he needs to move up the ladder in a normal way. Before we go on to the next one, are we all in agreement, though, that it's under three and a half? Is that the play if, if, we're, mm-hmm. if we're betting men? Some of us I, aren't. I some of us aren't. it's there in four years, personally. Yeah, I, I don't I like see three, we, I guess, how it goes, but. I could see three and then like after the third year mm-hmm. somewhere. So. Okay. So I already blew my uh, secret for mine, but the next segment here, <laughs> most surprising hire. Um, mine was Deion Sanders. Uh, why don't you go ahead, Chris, and start with yours? I'm going with Purdue. Hiring Ryan Walters, the defensive coordinator from Illinois. I put this down as most surprising because Purdue's entire history of success comes with hiring offensive coaches who like to air the ball out. Joe Tiller, Jeff Brom, you had tons of great quarterbacks who have come through there. So to hire the defensive coordinator out of Illinois really surprised me. However, he did hire Graham Harrell to be his offensive coordinator. So I would expect Purdue to keep throwing the ball around a lot. But it was really, really interesting because Purdue basically even said in their press conference, like, yeah, we know we have a good success when we hire offensive coaches. You know, like not that that was a guarantee, but I'm always curious when a defensive head coach hires like an air raid type of offense coordinator, how that's going to you know, clash or connect on what the overall team strategy is. So, you know, Purdue played in the Big Ten Championship last year. So like this is this is a team that's, you know, got talent. And, and, and can move the ball in the air. So that was my most surprising that they didn't go get one of these offensive guys who puts a big yeah. number somewhere else. In 2023, do we still kind of view that the same way of offensive and defensive minded or are head coaches just uh, CEOs of, of programs that uh, hire coordinators that fit what they want to do and, you know, let those guys cook? Like, I, I understand what you're saying, but is he a good steward for the program? I think is far more important than what side of the ball he's known for. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. No, I, I you're, you're right. And I think we've seen this year, particularly like a lot of offensive coaches are no longer calling the plays. Like a lot of guys who normally call plays, Jimbo Fisher, Eli Drinkwitz, like they're not calling plays this year. But my, my overall thought is though, how does a defensive guy look at what Graham Harrell's done at West Virginia, North Texas, USC and stuff like that. And, um, how does he fit it in? I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm not quite sure what to expect out of Purdue this year. Well, I think when you look at Mike Babinski, I think ultimately this is a situation where clearly he saw something in the interview because this is not a guy that people were clamoring to hire, uh, you know, immediately. And, and so this is one where you're putting your own reputation at stake. Um, when you hire a guy, you know, from some somebody that comes off the board, so it's very interesting, uh, and and we'll see how it plays out. But I do think, um, you know, especially the younger coaches that still want to hold on to play calling, I do think it definitely does matter uh, whether they're an offensive or defensive guy. Uh, most of the coaches, obviously, when they get a little bit older have a looser hand uh, with play calling. Some of them are Jimbo Fisher, but a lot of them have a looser <laughs> hand with play calling. And hey, 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 uh, hey, hey, no. Jimbo Fisher's not calling plays this year. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's not. Uh, but anyway, but I, so it, I think it does matter. And, and ultimately, you know, this is one where you're putting your neck out a little bit if you're the AD. Okay, Dave. So who's yours? Well, I'm going to go back to Luke Fickle just because Wisconsin uh, sitting here out kicking your coverage a little bit. You know, this mm-hmm. is again, the guy in Luke Fickle that, you know, I, you know, Chris, you would probably remember more than I would, but for a long time there, it seemed like he was going to be the guy at USC. 
Kind of. Maybe. Well, the thing. So when so 2021, when Cincinnati's that year, they make the playoff. Mm-hmm. They uh, Notre Dame. Uh, Brian Kelly leaves for uh, LSU. LSU. Mm-hmm. Right around the same time, Lincoln Riley left his thing. And Notre Dame wanted to talk to Fickle like he was one of their guys. But Cincinnati had the American Championship coming up that week, mm-hmm. uh, going for the undefeated season, going for the playoff spot. And he was like, I, I don't want to do with, deal with this right now. So they go to Marcus Freeman, his former defensive coordinator. They hire him, promote him, you know, and, and on and on. So uh, uh, let me ask you this, Dave. When you, when you put Luke Fickle as most surprising, are you more surprised that Wisconsin uh, went out and got him? Or are you more surprised yes. that he left? No, I think I think, you know, there aren't a lot of big time jobs that he would love to have that are going to come open soon. You know, obviously Michigan has turned right. around, um, you know, Ryan day TBD. We'll see. Um, you know, by Notre the way, Dame, he would leave for that TBD. job yeah. in 33 seconds. Regardless if that, if that ever happened and yeah. he was a candidate there, I think he would, I don't know. He'd probably leave his family for that job. Yeah. Uh, if I had to guess, but but I, but, think uh, too, I, I think there's a matter about of his family, his family. Yeah, no, no, he's got a really big family though. He could, he could field yeah. a roster, but I think you look at him and you look at the, um, the trajectory of schools that have moved up from the G5 to the P5, the bloom could have come off the Luke Fickle rose. And I think there's a question of if I go six and six and seven and five in my next two years mm-hmm. at Cincinnati, am I still going to be able to get any of these jobs? And maybe not. But at Wisconsin, you go in there and you say, okay, this is a little bit of a surprising move, but is there any reason why they can't win the West in year one? Of course not. You could do that easily. So you might not be competing for national championships there right away, but you can keep winning. And there's no reason to believe that the bloom's going to come off your rose. And I think he can take the program to, uh, you know, back to where Paul Christ had it, you know, at, at certain times and back to where Brett Bielema had it, you know, where you're competing and playing in Rose bowls and doing big things. And, you know, there's no reason to believe he can't do that. But I think at Cincinnati, you know, I, the time was right for Luke Fickle, and congrats to Wisconsin for playing it right. So it's 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 a little bit of both to answer. What's your question. the the perfect segue into the next one here, which is the best first year, best year one, mm-hmm. and everything you just said. And I agree, you got to strike when the iron's hot because sometimes, like I wonder about that, like with Matt Campbell, like did he overstay his his mm-hmm. uh, his what's how would you say it? Bloom on the the kiss by the rose on the grave. The bloom like comes off. The yeah, bloom, the bloom comes off the rose a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, it's like I'm sure he probably would be a candidate, but like two years ago he was a candidate for every job. Yeah, and now it's like, is he a candidate for any job? Because if you stay mm-hmm. too long, then you miss out on opportunities. But you know, with the way that Wisconsin's built up and the way that you just said that, it's clear that Luke Fickle is your best year one. Uh, mm-hmm. What about you, Chris? I'm gonna go. How we define best year one, it's relative to expectations or just a good year. It it can vary. But best year one to me, I'm going Jamie Chadwell at Liberty. Takes over for Hugh Freeze. Did not get Grayson McCall with him. But there is a good amount of talent on that Liberty team. We saw what Hugh Freeze was able to do in two years there. And Jamie Chadwell, again, lowest paid coach in the country at one point when he was at Coastal Carolina. Now he's going to Liberty, which which like tripled or quadrupled his salary or something like that with ridiculous facilities. Whatever you think of Liberty, and they're trying a to be lot serious. of thoughts about yeah. Liberty as a school, but they have put a ton of money into sports, into football. The facilities they have there are great. And Liberty is now in Conference USA this year. So they are eligible for the New Year's Six spot, you know, and they were picked second in the Conference USA preseason poll behind Western Kentucky. I would not be surprised if Jamie Chadwell takes Liberty to the Conference USA Championship in year one. And when you look at their non-conference schedule, Bowling Green, Buffalo, UMass, uh, and yeah, who I forgot, uh, Buffalo. Yeah, so, so like that's a very easy schedule. This could be a team that's sitting at ten and two, eleven and one, or, or better by the end of the year, potentially in that New Year's Six spot. So that's why I'm going Jamie Chadwell and Liberty. I think because they were FCS so recently, Chris, people don't realize how much money Liberty has. There's a lot they of money. Yeah, they, they want they want to be like the Notre Dame for evangelicals, the BYU type of thing. And you've seen Liberty, I'm sure, a lot in terms of political situations and stuff like that. But when it comes to athletics, like they've made the NCAA tournament, I think two years in a row as well. Um, the facilities, the money there is very, very real. He's being paid almost like a power five coach right now. 
Yeah, Hulu documentary, good for branding also. Yeah, I was right, say, who's on your list? Yeah, I watched that Hulu documentary <laughs> and I had no idea about any of it. And I was like up till three in the morning. I couldn't stop I had a, it. I've, I'm well versed in, in all things liberty. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting place. Uh, so Ari, my, what do you got? my first year success, I think, is going to be Matt Rule. And I think you might go and look. It's like, I don't know, Nebraska is always this this team that, you know, has a pretty good amount of talent. They've, you know, recruited top 25 classes every year. And then it's just the most embarrassing thing in the world when you watch them on TV. The thing that I love about Matt Rule, and I think one of you guys had him as your best hire, but like the consistent way that he is just competent in everything that he does. <laughs> And the fact that Nebraska is consistently losing close games in hilarious fashion. <laughs> I feel like his temperament as a coach and his expertise and building up programs and what he did at Temple and what he did at Baylor is exactly the type of thing that Nebraska needs in order to win those close games. You know, the way that he has outlined his recruiting department and the way that he handled the Dylan Rayola situation and um, you know, the, the players that he's bringing in, like, I feel like everything he's doing there is with a purpose and everything is, is got to go according to plan. And he's expecting and asking a lot out of his team in order to meet those expectations. So I think that if you do wonder where things were going to go, um, had they gone in a different direction, that's fine. I just love the steadiness of it because I think Nebraska if they are a steady program, is a perennial top 15 team, top 20 team. And if you're in the Big Ten West in the last year of that existence, and you finally have a coach that kind of mirrors that necessary temperament, then you might have a team that comes out and, and can just do what Bo Pelini did. I mean, it's not that long ago that Bo Pelini was fired for going 9-3 and three every year. It's like Nebraska we're, we're would kill for 9-3. and three. We're we're talking year one though here, like this first. Yeah, I think season, that like year based one on, based on the talent and everything and the schedule. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you go look at Nebraska's roster, I mean, I think a lot of the things with Nebraska is that they had a, some retention issues with some of the guys that would come in there and then just leave very quickly after. Um, but I do think that if you kind of they haven't released the two four seven sports uh, uh, team talent composite all the way through yet, but I'm I'm expecting that Nebraska is probably going to be in the top twenty five or top thirty just based on the way that they've recruited. I mean, they've, they've always recruited well, but were they recruiting the wrong guys, um, the wrong fits? Were they doing it with misevaluated players? Like maybe that, that'll that catch up to him. But, you know, what is a success for Nebraska? Maybe it's just a break from being the hilarious punchline to every joke that people tell on Saturdays. Maybe it's not going to Ireland and getting your ass kicked by Northwestern with the entire country watching. Like if they can just be competent in a six and six team that is a tough out in the Big Ten, I think that's a very successful first year. I'm not saying they're going to go to the playoff or anything. I just think that just if they could cut out being hilariously bad, you know, in it, muffed fumbles and or muffed kicks and weird onside kick attempts and all these weird crazy things that was happening before, I, I think that's a successful turnaround in year one. Have you looked? Have you looked at the schedule? Yeah, because they have a pretty tough help. schedule. No, 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 no. Non-conference games. Colorado, Northern Illinois, Louisiana Tech. That should be three Careful. wins. It, it should be what you think. I think and Colorado's cross, going to stink, games. but I think it's kind well, of a hard well, non-conference game yeah. to open with, but yeah. And it's it's on the road, but but crossover games, you don't have Ohio State, and you don't have Penn State. Mm-hmm. That's about as favorable a year one yeah, slate as you could get. You know, the Big Ten schedule. And you get Michigan at, and you get Michigan at home. And you also, know. as far as the Panthers thing, am I oversimplifying it to say that that whole situation failed because they didn't have a quarterback like at any point? I think in any NFL franchise, if you don't have a quarterback, I don't care if you've got Vince Lombardi coming back yeah. and, and standing on the sideline. This is a quarterback-driven game. And in the NFL, if you can't figure that out, then you can't figure anything out. So I'm with you on that. And it's, I also it, don't think it matters. Like, even if he went to the NFL and was terrible at it, like, I still don't think that that has – I just feel like people misunderstand the main tenet of being a good college football coach, and that is running in a staff and being able to get good players to play for you. And it's just so different than the NFL. It's like a different job. It's like, Dave, you're one of the best sports writers in the college football sphere. If you went to the New York Times, our parent company, tomorrow and started covering politics and you went out there to the White House and you sucked at covering politics. I don't think it would stop me from thinking you could co uh, write about football anymore. 
It's a different can game. I, it's a different sport. I still write about Sam job. Hartman's rib if we if we go write about politics. I don't know what's wrong with you, man. To your point, Aria, like I will never forget that in 2021, Nebraska went three and nine with a positive scoring differential. Yeah. That is yeah, it's like, like, the one... punchlines though. Ari, you were making me sad when you were like, if they could stop just being hilariously bad. I'm like, but that was great. That was well, so funny. You know, Every maybe week. Iowa's offense will take that this year as we get the drive to maybe. The 235 I, or whatever I, the number I, is. But I'm, I'm worried that Iowa's offense is going to disappoint us all and be merely Be bad. kind of good. Yeah, just no, be kind, kind of, of bad. Good, just be bad. <laughs> just kind <laughs> of bad, yeah. Okay, uh, here we go. We got a few more to, to punch through here. Um, best well, long-term Actually, real quick, style. I don't think did, oh, I, did Evan give his best year one? Oh, did you? Yeah, it's Fickle. I think he wins the West. It's Fickle. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've we talked already, about it. Yeah. Best long-term stock, me and Chris uh, have the same guy. Uh, Chris, why don't you uh, both do us a solid here and make the case? Kenny Dillingham, Arizona State, Arizona guy, Arizona State guy. Uh, this is this is long-term. It's going to be a bit of a struggle. They've had a lot of roster turnover the last couple of years with all the NCAA situation and, and all that's going on. But this guy gets this place and I'll leave this to Ari. I'll be quick here. Cause Ari is the Arizona guy here, but like this guy was built for this job. Mm-hmm. Basically doesn't mean it's going to work or not, but, but like if, if you want to unlock the potential that everybody says Arizona state supposedly has, we've talked for like decades, maybe about this being a sleeping giant program and outside of a Rose bowl appearance in 1996 and a couple other things, like they really have rarely been in the PAC 12 conversation. And so I, I think if you're looking long term, what Arizona State can and should be with the facilities and, and all the growing population they have there, uh, that's that's my pick. Are, are you go more into the Arizona part of it? Yeah. Um, Arizona is kind of an interesting place because it's a very quickly um, growing city and it's one of the fastest growing metropolitan areas, Phoenix anyway, when it comes to high school talent. But, you know, nobody is from there. Um, you know, I grew up there. My parents aren't from Phoenix, you know? Um, so having the people, you know, gravitate towards ASU, you know, 10, 15 years ago coming through the ranks is hard because there's no personal connection to that university. But now with people who went to ASU and my generation growing up and having kids and, you know, people having actually been from Arizona and sons of Arizona state grads, like, I think that Kenny Dillingham you know, understands that Scottsdale and, you know, bordering Tempe are a really great place to to live and probably a place that most people aspire to retire in and like can actually convince people or make an effort to convince people um, to stay home. And I think that that's an important part of any job. But now that there's actually great players there, and I mean, you go look at the long list of quarterbacks that have come out of there and like none of them sniff ASU. They just don't. Um, and you have a person that has no interest in ever leaving. He wants to live in Arizona. He's from Arizona. We're roughly the same age, and we have some mutual friends that we that we grew up with um, in that area. So if he's able to actually understand what ASU is, activate the Valley, as he would put it, you know, convince people that live in Arizona that staying in Arizona is a good thing to do, um, I actually believe that long-term the fit is perfect. And you don't, uh, you know, find coaches that – go into a job and want that to be their last job at his age ever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it might work, it might not work, but you know, the num- number one thing, and I think we said this on another show, Dave, that, that I think is missing with a lot of people, um, at least coaches is a fundamental misunderstanding of what needs to be done uh, at the place that they work in order to be successful or a misunderstanding of the way that, you know, talent works and what you need to do. Um, to win games. And I think Kenny and who I've spoken with multiple times and, you know, wrote a column that they should hire him when, uh, you know, he was, or ASU's opening came up. I've talked to him on the phone informally. He understands it unequivocally what needs to be done from an NIL standpoint, from a connecting to, to Phoenix kids standpoint. And of course, dipping into California and making Arizona state a national destination as well. So like, mm-hmm. like you said, Chris, I think it's going to take some time. Um, but if they stick with him, I think in a long, a long period of time, ASU may be a different place. Really good staff, by the way. A good mix of experience. Yeah. Guys like you keep Sean yeah. Aguano around. 
You add Charlie Regal. Le- leg- legendary history. high school Arizona coach, yes. Aguano, by the way. You, get, you bring in Brian Ward, who you don't have much of a history with from uh, Washington State. You get a couple young guys from Texas and Rashad Samples and, and Brian Carrington to help you out. You Huge. get a lot of Huge. legitimacy in, in recruiting the state of Texas. It makes a lot of sense. My only question, though, Ari, how hard do you think it is? What, what does it take in terms of on-field results to hashtag activate the Valley? Because mm-hmm. it's been a rough go immediately. But what does that look like? I mean, if you go nine and three in year one and you beat USC or something, the, does that do it? What, what do you get to get people from the community to really rally around this team? Because fan well, support I, is going to be tough. I think that local businesses, there's a lot of money in Phoenix and Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. And I think local businesses want to invest in local kids, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I know that winning is going to be the, the end all be all. And I think the hardest part about college football is. It's a chicken and the egg situation. What comes first, winning or the players that help you win? You know, um, if you can get the players that help you win through NIL and, you know, kind of activating the Valley's checkbook first um, and and really kind of getting that going and understanding that, you know, because it wasn't Arizona State's athletic director was the guy who said uh, he came out and said like a year or two ago that they're not going to engage in NIL and they're going to focus on <laughs> NFL development. It's like that was yeah. literally the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And it's not because <laughs> it was not uh, great of coming into the idea that kids need to be developed first. I understand that, but like Arizona state doesn't have good development numbers. And this is the new wave of the future. And like Kenny's whole thing is making sure that they have an NIL plan that gets kids excited about going to Arizona state. And you know, how do you make a program that wasn't cool? Cool. Isn't that like the billion dollar question that could solve half of the problems in the sport? Like, I don't know what it would take, but Mm -hmm. I think it takes uh, kids in Phoenix looking at Arizona state as a place that would be fun to go to and to play for in a legitimate place to win. Um, And I don't know what comes first, getting the players on your roster through NIL and being a a coach that understands that to win or winning, uh, you know, first and then, you know, being cool that way. But, you know, that's his, what are they paying him four or $5 million a year to figure that out? Yeah, so, I, don't remember into, I, don't, I, I, I don't remember where I was going when I heard that Ray Anderson quote, but I remember I was in the Chicago airport and thinking to myself, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's still there, by the way, like we yeah. I, a lot of people thought he was going to be fired when they fired Herm Edwards. Um, somehow he wasn't. And somehow he pulled together. However involved he was is not clear, but but they pulled together the guy that they needed to get. And to, to your point about activate the value, like me and Andy Staples were, were talking to Kenny Dillingham in Arizona at conference meetings a couple months ago. And Kenny was like, yeah, we've got some transfer guys who just like haven't announced yet, you know? And like they've kept certain things on the down low. So like he's doing a good job. I think of keeping expectations low to start mm-hmm. because he knows this is going to take some time. And I think that's the best thing a first-year coach can do is lower the expectations in year one. So, it, you know, we, we, but when USC and UCLA leave, like assuming the Pac-12 stays, stays together, there's no reason that shouldn't be the third best job in the Pac-10 or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, it's 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 always been there. It's just to see the guy to finally make it happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then uh, last, last pick here, David, best long-term stock that you're investing your own hard hope hard-earned money into i'm gonna go well i'm gonna say uh this is your personal cheddar here now be careful i'm gonna say tom herman at ford atlantic and i long term is relative because i think if he gets another shot at the big time which i suspect he will uh he'll probably take it but tom herman understands the sport as well understands recruiting building excitement you already have um, you know, a fan base who has tasted some really good success with, with Lane Kiffin there, obviously. Uh, and and Tom Herman, I think, is the guy that, that can can really, uh, you know, he's taking some time off. He spent some time with the Bears. Did not go well for him at Texas. Texas is a tough job for a million reasons. That's a whole show, Ari, if we want to do that show at some point. I would point. love to. I would love hold, to. On. So hold, hold on one second. Yes. You say things didn't go so well at Texas. He finished in the top yeah. 25 three times. He's yes. to this point well, finishing in the top twenty five at Texas than, isn't good enough. Yeah, I know, but ultimately was, he wasn't was better than when he, he took over. If we're going to compare he, him to to uh, uh, Charlie Strong and am I forgetting someone besides Sark? I don't think so. Charlie Strong and late Mac yeah. and uh, and know, Sark so far. Com- yeah, compared to them, yeah, he did great, but ultimately it wasn't good enough. Like Texas wants more, um, and 
you know, at the end of the day, I think there's some refreshing there. If you've seen, uh, who, who was it on our staff that wrote the, was it you, Chris? That was me. That was Chris. Uh, the new, the new Tom, uh, he has continued his streak of looking like a different person every single time you see him (laughs) in every single picture. It's unbelievable. Like, it was a joke for a while, but then like it really is like now he's he's truly embodied that with he's lost a bunch of weight, clean shaven. Uh, now I feel yeah. like he's leaned into that, but ultimately, um, you know, this is the, the sky is the limit for FAU uh, under Tom Herman, and there's a lot of talent and a lot of folks that when they hit the portal and maybe things don't go well at Miami or Florida or wherever, it's not a bad place to go, right? Get in that offense. Uh, I think to, you're going to be in loving it. To that point, do either of you know who FAU's quarterback is? Oh, it's a man. transfer I do, I involving a team we've already talked about and a coach we've already I talked about. I do know. About. Don't tell us. Oh, it's, it's Casey it's, Thompson. It's from Nebraska. It's Casey uh, Thompson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Casey Thompson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Recruited to Texas quite, by Tom Herman. Quite a, a, a revolving door at Nebraska. Shout out to Jeff Sims. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, so, that's been the thing there. Yeah, and, and the thing about Tom Herman, like even at Texas, but especially at Houston, like when this guy is the underdog, he's great his record yes. like against ranked teams when he's unranked or something is like ridiculously good the problem is always when there are the high expectations and you're supposed to win that's when things don't always go so well this is a guy who's back to that you know lower level you know prove everybody wrong type of thing and feu's not a bad program i think they went five and seven they've been they were just kind of average under mm-hmm. willie taggart and so basically you now they've moved into the american and what you want out of tom herman is what you got out of Lane Kiffin, which is two conference championships in three years. And he goes off to a bigger job. So like when you say best, like long-term fit, I don't know how much long-term is going to be like, kind of like, like you said, but his ability to leave or get best FAU total tenure. To, how about that? Best total yeah, to, get FAU, <laughs> to get FAU into a better place compared to when he took it over. I, I think yeah. is, is, is high. And I think that's, um, I, I, I am also very high on Tom Herman at FAU. Well, there's one other there's there's one other one that I wanted to say since you and I both had Kenny Dillingham. We can't get through this entire podcast without at least mentioning Hugh Freeze's name. And like I know that like <laughs> Auburn, Auburn, uh, you know, these fans have just been starved. Like I remember I used to do this week in recruiting, and they're like, "Are you ever going to have an Auburn update?" And my answer was, "When there's something to update." And like now there actually is something to update. I think that there's a chance that Hugh Freeze is going to rock shit there. And I know that there, there is, there is, uh, you know, the dynamic of his, you know, past personal resume and all that stuff. But that aside from a football standpoint, that is a very good marriage to me. When you think about long-term stock, where is he going to go after Auburn? Like he could be at Auburn for a long time if he gets that thing cooking. And I think that's a good thing. Here's my question about here. Well, that's the thing. Here's my question about long-term fit at Auburn. What are the chances you think things don't just blow up there? That he doesn't do something or if he's good? You know, now, Chris, there for a long saying, time. Are you saying that coaches might have spectacular exits from Auburn? That's never <laughs> happened before. By the way, what are you speaking, of exit, about? speaking of exits from Auburn, Hugh Freeze got almost the exact same buyout clause that Gus Malzahn and Brian Harson did. I don't know who exactly is doing the contracts at Auburn, but they're doing a terrible job after they paid Gus all that money, 20 something million dollars, half of it due within like 30 days. They gave basically the same buyout to Brian Harson. had to pay him a bunch of money. I think the only difference with Hugh Freeze's contract is they no longer have to pay half of it within 30 days. So there's that, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know, like what's going to happen when, Alabama fans and all these people are just like egging him on on social media or, you know, stop getting into personal people, situations. That'd be a good start. Like, and then, you know, we can go for there. Because like, it, like, obviously he didn't go to Liberty and like fix that. You know, he talked to. He did just recently uh, was, respond to a tweet from a person with 41 followers. I did see that like a week well, ago. Like, <laughs> at Liberty, he's DMing, he's DMing people, uh, sexual assault victims on, to, to talk about Ian McCaw as AD there at Liberty and, and how great of a person he is and, and, and stuff like that. And it's just like, he can't, history has shown he can't help himself from doing these things. And so long-term, 
do you expect him yeah. not to? And can he stay there for five years and, and not blow up in some fashion? Okay, got, guys, rapid fire here. We're going to do it. You get one second to tell. <laughs> you get one second to, to explain your answer. Okay. Okay. Uh, in a sentence or less, here's our sleeper pick for um, new hires in college football. Chris, you go first. Rapid round. Eric Morris. Eric Morris at North Texas. He I like built Incarnate pick. Word into a good program. North Texas has all the tools you could want, all the facilities, location to talent. They're moving to the American this year. Uh, I like that as a sleeper pick, Eric Morris. We got to put North Texas on the Arizona State, Texas, Texas A&M list of why aren't they better? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, Dave. I'm going to yeah. go. I'm going to go Alex Golish at USF. Uh, I know Alex a little bit. Smart guy. Uh, some people just read head coach. I think he understands what it takes to be a head coach. He's, he's worked under a bunch of really, really good coaches. Matt Campbell, obviously Josh Heupel, guys that have enjoyed a lot of success. And there's a lot of talent in Florida, USF. Another program where I'm not sure that there's much of a ceiling there if you really get it cooking. Yeah, and I'm going to go. And they're building. Uh, and they're building a stadium there soon. They yes. just announced that, so that's good. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go Kevin Wilson, uh, former Ohio State often, uh, offensive assistant, who's going back to Oklahoma to Tulsa, and he, uh, you know, has been a pretty big innovator in offensive football and has a really nice resume of of successful football things in Oklahoma. Now I know that there's some issues with uh you know play Indiana where the way that that all ended, but you know I think that you know he has a reputation in that state and knows how to draw up football and is a part of a lot of big Ohio State offensive innovation and I think he's a good on the field football coach. I know I I I I have some questions about this Ari, but Kevin Wilson is also the guy who coordinated Oklahoma's offense when it was humming under Bob Stoops. Yes. Yes, in two thousand eight and two thousand nine, two thousand seven, uh, with Sam Bradford when they were, mm-hmm. they think they scored sixty points in like six consecutive games when that was not done. They went into that national championship game against Florida with a lot of conversation of like, is this the greatest offense college football has ever seen? And that was Kevin Wilson driving that bus pretty much by himself with Jay Norvell, another head coach in the mix there, and Josh Heupel uh, also on that staff. So quite a staff. Tul- Tulsa is a very difficult job. Private mm-hmm. school, tiny mm-hmm. school not the greatest facilities, but they've got a pretty good track record of coaches who have come through there, mm-hmm. whether as assistants or head coaches, Gus Malzahn, Mike Norvell, Todd Graham, um, uh, Philip Montgomery did like an okay job there. So um, it's an interesting And they also fit. have a show Is called Tulsa King that you can go watch on Showtime. <laughs> I heard it's <laughs> really good. So I never watched it. In that? Yes, he is. Just yeah. go watch it. Okay. Yeah, I've, seen the poster. I've seen the posters and I was like, this feels like a joke show. Looks awesome. <laughs> oh, okay. So we went a little bit long, but how do you uh, not go long when you have three different personalities as big as ours on a podcast? And 24 well, new head coaches. Yeah. 24 new head coaches. Hopefully we did a pretty good job of uh, taking you through that, that window there. Uh, thank you all for tuning into the latest edition of until Saturday. Uh, we will continue to be previewing the season in rapid form in uh, consistent form between now and week zero. Be sure you're following uh, the podcast on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you're notified when new episodes are up. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. And if you would, subscribe to Until Saturday on YouTube, uh, which uh, will uh, the link will be available to you in the show's description. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We're excited and fired up to be back. Uh, we will keep you up to speed. We'll do all the stuff and, you know, do our thing. So until Saturday, see you.